you're going to hear this for the first time I've ever said it and probably the first time I've ever thought it. And I probably need to write this down or listen to this again. The relief from distress carries rewards greater than the terms of the sale. Ooh, Ooh how about that? Greater than the terms of the sale. Exactly. Exactly. Ooh, I need to write that one down because you just made me think of it. Uh, text me that later. Leanne Jensen has been investing in real estate since 1975 for almost 50 years. And Leanne is a founder of knowledge and wisdom, not just in real estate, but in life and business in general. I think of Leanne as a Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, but for real estate. And he'll tell you what works in a simple yet honest and easy to understand way. Through the years, Leon has owned several businesses, including insurance agencies, tax planning franchises, but his passion has always been real estate investing, particularly using creative strategies to build his portfolio. As an investor, Leon has bought, owned, sold mobile homes, mobile home parks, storage building, wholesaled, fixed and flipped, built houses, he has subdivided land, as well as built commercial buildings as new construction. But he generally prefers buying and holding single-family houses using owner financing. Leon will also tell you he has had a high success rate of getting a second bite out of the apple on properties purchased through owner financing, which means he has done many deals with the same people over and over again. Leon has mentored many, many, many real estate investors, and you'll hear from a few of them through this podcast. He and his wife, Anna, have two children, both of whom are actively involved in real estate investing. One is a state senator and one is an incredible real estate investor who I am working on having on the show at some point as well. One of my favorite things about Leon are his Leonisms, where he'll say something so simple and so witty, but it changes how you think about a subject entirely. He says, when it comes to land, buy it by the bottle, sell it by the shot. He says, balloons are for clowns and many, many more that we'll hopefully hear in this conversation. One of the other things I love about learning from Leon is that he takes a very long-term view to real estate investing. When I think about people who have tenants who stay with them for decades, Leon is one of those people. And the way he does business, the way he thinks about real estate is something that I've been privileged to learn a little about and has changed a lot of how I think about and do invest in real estate. So welcome to the show, Leon, and thank you for being here today. Eddie, thank you so much. And and I have to say thank you for all those kind words. You know, I don't know if I could live up to a Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, not, not in the least. But I wanted to tell you thank you for the opportunity and invite that you've given me to come on with you here on one of your first podcasts. And I want to tell you how grateful I am for individuals like you who I admire so much because of your traveling the world, living in a lot of different places, and recognizing the opportunities that we have here in America, and for taking your time and resources to go and learn. And I know that you're super successful in your career in the corporate world and the investing world. I admire that, and I think your voice will be heard, and you will be able to help a lot lot of folks and and help keep our country going and strong. It's going to take folks and individuals like you to make this happen. Thank you. I appreciate that, Leanne. Now I'm smiling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your smile makes me happy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
So I think jumping right into the conversation, I've heard you say that if people think about other people first and real estate last, that will help them go a long way. So you say, if you think about people first and real estate last, that will help you go a long way. What does that mean or look like to, to think about people first and real estate last? Well, you know, I think that's true in life in general. And, and no matter what you do, if you think of people first and think about what you can do to help other people find freedom and peace in their life. You know, I, I started out as a real estate broker in 1975. And I did the typical realtor thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a great need for realtors and, and for what they do. And we hire realtors all the time in our business. But one of the things that I think realtors tend to do is focus on what I call the sticks, bricks, and dirt. You know, we go look at a house. We measure it. We look for defects in the house. We stage it and get good pictures and we're selling the house. And the people are left totally out of that scenario. And I think what we need to do is look at those folks' situation and see what it is in their life that's causing them to sell a nice home like that, you know? And so many times we think, well, we're just going to sell this object but we need to think about solving the problems that surround that object, you know? There's no bad piece of real estate, really. There's just unfavorable circumstances around which it's owned. Mm. And that could be because somebody needs to move across country, but you know, to uh, get a job, or it could be they've inherited it and they're out of state and it's vacant and they're worried about vandalism. They can't afford to pay taxes, can't afford to fix it up. They lay awake at night worried about it. It could be any number of reasons, you know, older, tired landlords that, you know, they've reached a phase in their life where they don't need to be managing that property anymore. And they need help to understand how they can, in their situation, avoid paying more taxes and get better benefits when they sell. So you just need to look at the circumstances around which it's owned and find out about the people as much as we do the sticks, bricks, and dirt. And so when you're looking to buy property, it sounds like what you're looking for first is what are sort of the unfavorable, the uncomfortable situations that the seller is going through that you can kind of speak to? That's exactly right. And, and you know, if it's not an uncomfortable circumstance, if it's one where their house is in good shape and, you know, they're not pressed financially, but they just need to move. And we invite realtors and refer those folks to realtors all the time, you know, to sell that sticks, bricks and dirt for them. Mm. So we were once a deal maker, and I asked you what you think about selling your properties. And I think I was asking, at what point do you think about selling them? And you said, never. You said you hold onto them forever. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that ethos of like holding onto the properties forever and really look at looking at your properties as these are gonna these are trees that will last for decades and decades and generations. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, really and truly, people ask me what's some of my biggest regrets, and it's properties that I've sold before. And occasionally there's one way down on the list that, you know, like John Schaub, one of my mentors that wrote the book, Building Wealth 
one house at a time. And he does some seminars, has said, you know, that he reviews his properties every year and he makes a list and he finds the least favorable property on there. And he thinks about maybe selling that. But there's when you do sell it, there's things that you can do like 1031 exchanges to move that property into another property that you like better. But the idea of never selling Something I got from another mentor, not in the real estate business, a long, long time ago, he said, give your efforts time to compound. And so many people in this instant society don't give their efforts time to compound. I think about some houses that I just just bought three or four or five years ago that have gone from like 140, 150,000 and one 105,000 to now like $225,000. And, and that's in four or five years. And had I turned around and sold those properties right off the bat, I wouldn't have recognized that gain. And they're both cash flowing. They were, I bought them seller financing and they're both cash flowing. The other thought about that is too, unless politicians who think they know better than us change the rules. Whenever you sell a home, I mean, excuse me, you, you go to heaven, let's say, and you leave property for your heirs on the day that you go off to heaven, the basis in that property goes up to market value. And if they were to sell on that day or at that price, sometimes in the near, near future, they pay no taxes, no capital gains, no recapture of depreciation. So there's a there's a big reason to do that, but it's a it's a way to pass on a legacy and, and an income for your heirs. Hey, quick reminder, all the content you hear on the podcast and in the fireplace community are all for your entertainment and education only. It is not financial advice. Please get advice from a competent financial professional, especially if you need expert help for your very specific situation. Okay, on to the episode. So let me let me break that down for people who might be listening who are brand new to this. You buy a house for a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Thirty years later, it's worth let's say five hundred thousand. Yeah. You pass it on to your children. The value of the house or the basis of the house becomes five hundred thousand. That's right. The government is looking at it as if you had actually purchased that property for $500,000. That is correct. That's right. So if they sold it for the next week for $500,000 or the next month for $500,000, then they owe no taxes on that. So Mm. that's a reason to keep it all the way through. Mm. So a big deal. And hopefully they're not going to change that. It's it's called a stepped up basis is what it's called. Do you know why why that is? You know, I'm not real sure why that is. Uh, uh, Probably because in the past, there was a pretty influential politician who owned a lot of property who did not want to pay taxes on it and didn't want his heirs to pay taxes on it. Most likely, that's what it was. That sounds about right. That's probably how it came about. (laughs) Uh, That's why a lot of those rules are in place. They benefit somebody. Exactly. So talking about owning properties for a very long time, last year I felt like for me was just really intense in terms of the real estate. And I don't even own the number of properties that most people have. Like I have a couple and I felt like between like refinancing and dealing with repairs and property managers and this broke and that broke, I ended up just being really stressed out towards Mm -hmm. the end. Mm -hmm. But then I think about people like you who have been investing in real estate for almost 50 years or more than 50 years at this stage. 
And you must have found a way to make it sustainable for you, for it to not wear you out owning all of these properties. So what is the secret of doing real estate sustainably? Management. Management is the key. And that's one of the most, it's, I would almost say it's a keystone. If you know what a keystone is, you know, for those who don't, if you're building an arch and it gets up to the top, that last stone that goes in there that holds it all together and keeps it all together is a keystone and management is the keystone. And one of the reasons that I like single family houses, they're one of the easiest things to manage. Now, yeah, and some people would argue with that. They would say commercial property is, and yeah, it, commercial property can be easy to manage, but it's a whole different ball game. And I've owned a lot of commercial property, but I like those single family homes because when you value properties, the uh, approach to appraising is three different approaches. There's the cost approach, there's the income approach, and there's the market approach. And commercial property right now is suffering. There's, there's a lot of big, smart folks with a lot of money that's in trouble right now with commercial real estate. But everybody has a place to live. And even with interest rates up and, you know, as good as the market's been the last few years, there's a shortage of single family homes. Hmm. And they can be valued on the market approach, not, not just the income approach. So back to management. I learned first in 1978 from Jack Miller and John Schaub, some of my old mentors. And there was another guy who came along a couple of years later and learned from them and just has been excellent at putting systems together. And I think he has one of the best property management courses there is in the universe. And I think you know who I'm talking about, Dave Tilney, a hassle-free property management. And I think he would be glad to be on your podcast uh, one of these days too. And I would even recommend that for you. And, and, and even learning kind of the system before him, I've attended his class about five times. So when you have the systems in place and understand you're not just managing sticks, bricks, and dirt, yes, mm. you, you have to know a little bit about sticks, bricks, and dirt, but you're also managing people and learn your state laws and look at it on a long-term basis. We like our tenants to stay a long time. My longest was 23 years. My last longest was 14 years. And up until a year ago, last October, he went to heaven. Mm. And otherwise he'd still be with me. Wow. Um, I've had very, 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 very few evictions through the years. I had one last week, the first one that I've personally been involved in in over 20 years. Wow. And yes, no matter what your experience is, you'll still screw up every now and then. And that's okay. You know, you, you just pull through it. And another thing is, if you have just one property or two properties and you're counting on the cash flow for them, you know, and you have to put a roof on or if you have to, you know, new AC or whatever the case might be, it can hurt you. But if you have 15 houses uh, or 20 houses or 30 houses, there's a lot of them that you're not going to have to put new air conditioning units in. There's going to be a lot of them you're not going to have to put new roofs on. And there's some of them that's going to get paid off one way or the other. And you build up a, you know, a reserve to cover that. We put in four or five brand new central heat and air units, and we put on several new roofs. But even with that, 
it is going to sustain those properties for a long time. And, and then also there was enough other properties that subsidized that to, so we can still go to the grocery store, even though groceries is gasoline's super high now. So I have a, a follow-up. I'm curious about that eviction, the, the most recent one. What happened? Just every now and then, someone slips through the crack. And I, and I went back and reviewed their credit report, and it was a little lower than what I normally like to take. But uh, this person was actually a property manager in, a, in some apartments, and she wanted to, she was going to keep her job there. And also, she was, you know, I thought, hey, she, she's understanding. And mm-hmm. I even went to her apartment, and it was very nice inside very well kept and i did it on kind of a surprise visit and as a matter of fact if i remember correctly that's where we did the rent up with her and at the eviction she actually showed up which kind of surprised me Hmm. but she told the judge that she was separated and that could have been it but she has not told the truth in numerous other occasions, so I hesitate to believe anything that she said. So, you know, every now and then one slips through, and we don't like that. And I will tell you this, you'll solve 95% of your problems right up front at the very beginning by good screening and marking loud at the beginning. And I tell folks, you know, Hey, look, if it, we're too tough, if you can't pay on time and take good care of the place, don't rent from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're too tough. And I tell stories about horror stories and things that have happened in the past and what what we've done. And, and, and I just want them to know. And I've had several people that I have approved get to the point where, hey, look, we sit down and start talking. They say, yeah, I think we better not rent from you. <laughs> So, and and that's part of the, you know, going through the different filters and screens that that get you there. So what do you do in terms of screening? We do applications uh, for every person above 18 that's going to be living in the household. They have to do a paper application that we review. And then, you know, that shows their their work history that shows where they have lived before. Uh, you know, we can call their current landlord, but I don't put a lot of stock in that because uh, they might not be paying. They might be tearing the place up. They might be causing problems, and that landlord wants them out. And all oh, they are the best tenant in the world. But I like to talk to the one before that. They tend to be more honest about what the situation is, and and we want to know where they lived before. You know, if they're moving out from their mom and dad, you know, they've been living with their mom and dad. That, that's not that's a red flag. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's several things we used to have on that application. Who is your attorney? And if they listed one, we didn't rent to them. <laughs> but um, another thing we use uh, rent spree. And and I, and I know there's several things out there, but we just use rent spree. Rentspree.com, I think it is. Mm. R-E-N-T-S-P-R-E-E. And that gives you their credit report, all their current bills, uh, you know, how they've been on making their payments in the past. We've had evictions show up. I've had one person who went ahead and spent the 38 bucks. When it came back, they had had four evictions. 
<laughs> but I don't know why they would spend their 38 bucks, you know, and what a lot of people, it, it's just filters, you know, once people find out that there's a lot of times they'll say, is this a company or an individual? Mm. And if you tell them it's a company, you, you never hear from them again, because what they really want to know is you're going to check me out. Or are you mm. some individual that's just going to let me in? Mm. So anyway, a lot about management there. And that's, and Dave Tilney's course is three days long. So I think you've taken I've it. Taken it. I've taken Dave Tilney's course and yeah. there's a lot of information that I still go through every now and then. I've, I've sat through it about five times wow. and learned something new every time. Repetition is the key to greatness. I know Adam, one of my sons that you referenced there, has taken it three or four times and he's planning on sitting through it again in March. Oh, okay. Anyway, management is the keystone. Mm. And you self-manage all of your properties. Yes. Yes, we still do. Uh, Jack Miller said something a long time ago, and I tend to agree with it, that uh, management companies will charge you 10% and then lose at least another 10% for you. I can agree. With some of the management companies I've had, I can definitely agree. And it's way more than 10% to help you lose. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I like the idea of master leasing. If if I were had properties in another state now, I would definitely find a student, a successful student of Dave Tilney and master lease to them. Mm. Like you, if I had something in Tampa, Tampa, I'd be calling Eddie if she wanted to take yeah. care of manage it or not. So, so my, and just explain master leasing, what master leasing is for people who don't know. Okay. Uh, there's two kinds of master leasing. One of those is, and, and, it, and it's an old deal. It's not something that's new. It's been done in commercial real estate for hundreds of years, probably, but a little newer to a lot of folks in the, you know, single family residential type deal. But one is just like the old time, you lease the property with the right to release it, to re mm -hmm. lease it out. And uh, another one is on a performance base, and that's where it's very similar to property management, but you don't have to have a license to do it. You lease the property and you pay the owner based on performance. If, if you collect rent, you pay them X amount. And if you don't collect rent, they don't get a payment. Same with property management management companies. You know, they don't have to pay the landlord, the owner, um, unless they collect. Mm -hmm. And I've heard, I think you've said this, or somebody has mentioned this, that if you were starting again, you would go through master leasing as the first, the first thing you would do. I would learn property management because it's a keystone. And if I had no money and had no friends that had money and no credit, I would learn property management, and that's what I would start doing initially. Mm. I'm going to talk to somebody who has built a whole business around that, and I'm very curious to hear like how how they've gone. Mm -hmm. Moving on to seller financing, I've heard you say that the relief from distress carries greater rewards than the price of the home. Exactly. Tell me what that means, and then tell me how you discovered seller financing. Oh, gosh. Well, I discovered it back in the 70s when I first did several deals with seller financing, because what they're really looking for is freedom and peace from some kind of a situation they're in. You're going to hear this for the first time I've ever said it and probably the first time I've ever thought it. And I probably need to write this down or listen to this again. 
the relief from distress carries rewards greater than the terms of the sale. Oh, Ooh, how about that? Greater than the terms of the sale. Exactly. Exactly. Ooh, I need to write that one down because you just made me think of it. <laughs> uh, text me that later. This episode is sponsored by the Herfirst House community called Fireplace. You can learn more about the community by going to herfirsthouse.org. My goal for the podcast is to get people who say, hey, because of her first house, I felt confident buying a home. I felt confident buying an investment property. And listening to the podcast episodes will help you start to build those muscles. But I also feel that community is really going to be where it's at in terms of actually starting to feel comfortable taking some of the great information you're going to learn on the podcast and putting it into action and also having the support from everyone around you to be able to do that. I wanted Fireplace to get to that campfire essence where there's comfort, there's warmth, and if you're with the right people, there's vulnerability and a chance to see yourself in a different light. Once you're in, we have some really great resources. You can hop on a call with me and everyone else in the community, ask any questions you have, hear what other listeners like you are up to in their own journeys. You get a better list of resources I personally attended, read, or used to grow my portfolio, access to training from experts, maybe even special private community sessions with guests who come on the show. For our brand new podcast, we are starting small, which means that the first few members in the Fireplace community will really get that support and undivided attention. But we are excited that the community is going to be the strength of this podcast and is really going to drive the why behind Her First House. So check it out, herfirsthouse.org. The relief from distress carries rewards greater than the price and the terms of the sale. Mm. So if someone is out of state, behind in their taxes, it's going to take some money to fix the property up. Your local realtors really don't want to fool with it because it's not move-in ready. It doesn't show well. Maybe it needs a new roof, whatever the case might be. That person is in distress because they live out of state they're, you know, maybe they're about to lose it for taxes. Mm. And those folks are more likely to accept terms of an installment sale, say, because they're not in a position to sell for cash or demand cash. Mm. Okay. And so many people come in with the big old hammer that they want to offer 60 cents on a dollar or less and just beat them up on price. But if we can take into consideration, oh yeah, okay, we're gonna need to put a new roof. We're gonna need new air conditioning. We're gonna need new flooring. And who else knows what might be wrong with this house? Cause it's been vacant for two years mm -hmm. um, and you're out of state. You know, I need to make some concessions on price cause I'm gonna have to come out of my pocket to put those things in. And I know you want a big down payment, but you're, we're going to use this home as collateral for me buying this on an installment sale from you. And when I take my cash and, and fix those things up and put a new roof on it, your collateral is going to be a lot better than it is right now. Mm. So instead of me making a big down payment, allow me to make payments to you over a period of time. No balloons, because balloons are for clowns. 
and let me spend my cash that I have putting a new roof on, putting a new and make this a nice home. You know, maybe down the road, I'll be able to maybe pay you a year in advance for a discount or something. Mm-hmm. And, and I can think of a lot of places, a lot of times you talked about that second bite out of the apple where I've bought homes little or low down. And, and sometimes I put enough down for them to be able to pay the taxes out of it. They pay the taxes. So, you know, they feel like I've got a dog in the hunt. And mm-hmm. uh, so then they finance it. And just before closing, I call them up and say, hey, look, I know you're not going home with a lot of money, but what if I were able to pay you a year in advance if we just knocked 15% off that total annual payments? Mm. And I've had that happen just numerous times at closing. After we sit there and close, I have a modification of the note uh, and a, a check made out to them. I slide it across and they read it while the attorney's making copies of the closing for them and me, and they read it. And I've done that with realtors and, you know, people, is you're not, let me just say this, creative finance is not about slip shucking people, taking advantage of them, you know, doing something shady. It's about solving problems and bringing freedom and peace to them. And one lady where I put 5,000 down, she used 4,300 of that to pay back taxes. She was about to lose the property. I called her up, you know, a couple of days before closing because I was anxious to make sure she was going to come and be there and close because she lived out of state several hours away. And and I asked her, I said, um, you know, I know you're going home with like $700 tomorrow. What if I could pay you a year in advance uh, in exchange for a 15% discount? She said, on the whole house? And I said, no, 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 just add up a, a, a year's payments. And I and not 15% off of that. And I'll send you the, I'll bring you a check and we'll modify the note. And she said, I wish I had two houses to sell you. <laughs> and, and she was a realtor in another state. Mm. And, and through the years, there was one year that she said she didn't want to do that. And I'd started making payments again. And then last year, about March or April, she called me up and said, could we do that year in advance thing again? And I mm. said, sure. And so I think April the 1st, it's coming up again with her. And I'm solving problems for her. I'm, you know, she can, she knows she can get some extra cash from me if she needs it. Getting that discount on a year in advance, you're dramatically kind of reducing the principal balance that you owe her. That's right. That's exactly right. And I know you have, but for the folks that are hearing this for the first time, you can do that if you're renting from a landlord or if you're whatever the case might be, if you pay a year in advance for a 15% discount, that's a 31.12% return on your money. And that's a good one to memorize right there. Yep. A year in advance for a 15% discount, that's a 31.2% return on your money. Yep. And the yep. relief of distress carries rewards greater than price are the terms of the sale. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, oh, you just gave me some ammunition. <laughs> I was going to ask you about how you think about terms, but I feel like you've kind of talked about that a little bit. But when you think about all of the different 
elements of terms. You know, you can negotiate on the the length of the the length of the deal, the interest rate, the the number of months, etc. What matters most to you when you're thinking about terms? The fact that I'm not buying something and obligating myself to something that my tenants can't afford. Mm. Don't buy anything your tenants can't afford. Okay. Avoid alligators. That's negative cash flow. So th that's the first and foremost. And that's a simple way to look at it. So just sit down and look at the numbers and make sure it'll work out. A house we bought last July the 1st, we closed on it. And I had uh, a friend uh, that's a joint venture with me on this deal. And he actually negotiated this deal pretty much. Both of us did in a way, but he set the terms. It was an 83-year-old guy selling us a house, and the house would carry about $1,100 a month rent. I think we rented it for a 1025 discounted rent. We bought it for $110,000, nothing down, 4% interest. And my uh, joint venture person that bought it with me told the seller, we can only pay $500 a month mm. and we'll pay 4% interest. So that made this house cash flow after taxes, insurance, and put a little money away for reserves. And it was an 83-year-old, and there's 397 payments with no balloon. Why would an older, older folks be willing to finance something way past their expected life mm. expectancy? It's because they don't need the money now. They want a little freedom and peace from property management. They don't want to deal with that anymore. And they know that their kids are going to get those payments. So when you're sitting down with folks, and that this is where that people thing comes in more than the sticks, bricks, and dirt, okay? Mm. One of the things that I ask when I'm getting acquainted with the folks and, and attempting to build rapport is I want to know about them. I want to know about their family. I want to know about... One of the so one of the big questions that I ask is, do you have children? How old are they? Where are they? What do they do? Where are you from originally? Uh, what kind of work career did you have through the years? All of those things. It's a people business, not a real estate business. And and finding out those things, you know, when you offer those payments that are going to last long past their life expectancy, the first thing they're going to say and think is, hey. I don't buy green bananas. What's going to happen when I die? And one of the things that I tell them is, look, at my age now, I'm telling them, well, my kids might be paying your kids. Mm. And, and every month when they get that check, they're going to think about you. And I had a 94-year-old guy the other day that I had a meeting with his, and his 84-year-old wife, very, very savvy guy. And when I said that, he got the biggest grin. He absolutely loved that. Absolutely loved it. The guy doesn't need money. And uh, he liked the idea that every month when his kids get a check from us, that they're going to think about him. <laughs> That's part of his legacy. Mm. So anyway, in terms, you know, there's discount price. That is a term. Uh, our wholesale Wholesale terms, I mean price versus wholesale terms or discounted terms. Mm -hmm. And and that, that can be a numerical thing as well as wording in the notes and uh, the security instrument. How do you build rapport with people? 
because I, I want to lean in here because I've sat across a couple of many tables with you. And there's always a cross section of people, different racial backgrounds, different religion, sexualities, all sorts. Like there's always a cross section of different kinds of people. And the only thing they have in common is they respect you and they want to learn from you. So how do you build rapport with people? Well, first of all, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So I like to find out about people. You ask questions about people, where are you from? Mm. And that question sometimes brings out their whole life story. It's funny to just see it. And, and I like to do it. And I like to have uh, somebody with me to see that in action. It's, it's just incredible when you ask that question. They'll mm. go on and on and on. The, you know, a few weeks ago, I went on a a hunt on a, this very exclusive hunting resort. And the guy who was in charge of the evening shift of the all the um, meals and, and the resort, the lodging, came around to our table a couple of times. And I asked him that question. And he must have talked for 15 minutes, you know, found out all kinds of things about this guy. Mm. You know, so you build rapport by finding out about people mm. and, and letting them talk. Mm. Um, the other thing is, if you're going to get uh, an installment sale, and heaven forbid, don't say the word seller financing, owner financing, creative finance, all those kind of things. Those are all dirty words. Uh, they have to understand that you are competent and they have to understand that you're trustworthy. And if they think you're trustworthy, but they don't think you're too confident, they're probably not going to do business with you. If they think you're confident, you know, this guy's sharp, but he's slick. I don't know if he's trustworthy. They're probably not going to do business with you. So you have to, and sometimes it takes years working with the, some of these sellers for them to get to that point that they feel like that. You know, we had one guy, Adam and I, that I was sat at his kitchen table at his house where he lived. He had one rental property. This guy was a retired engineer and very, very smart guy, but had no property management experience. And he said, well, I think, and it, his property was vacant. He'd had it rented to the military for like four years and it, that had worked out real good. He said, well, I think I'll try it you know, again. Well, he got two professional tenants that just took him to the cleaners. When he finally got it out, I'm sitting at his kitchen table again. He asked a million questions, very detailed. And I think he decided, well, I think I want to do this. But he said, I want to come to your house mm. and talk to you about it there. So he and his wife came to my house and we sat down in my living room and talked for probably an hour. He said, I think we want to go ahead and do this. So we wrote up the contract sitting in my living room. And he and my wife went in the kitchen to get everybody something to drink. And she whispered to my wife, you guys are a godsend. Thank you so much for helping in this, in this deal. And mm. I bought this house from a 73-year-old, 360 payments, 3% interest, no balloons, and nothing down. And wow. it was very little to do with this house, but they were so relieved because this management thing was worrying them so badly. Four months later, this guy calls me up and he says, Hey, look, I, I know, I don't know if you and Adam can use it or not, but he said, I've got another $400,000 sitting in my checking account 
that if you guys can use it in some real estate deals, I'll, I'll work with you. And it was a year before we even used any of it. And I know hmm. that Adam has used it two, three, four times, you know, and on a short-term basis. And sometimes it was so short that Adam would throw in an extra thousand dollars over and above the agreed interest, you know, and so you build allies and rapport that way. And, and, you know, I could have anybody pick up the phone and call him and he'd say, Hey, they're trustworthy. Trust me. So, and we have several like that. So it sounds like to start with, there's a genuine interest in the other person asking them, you know, where are you from? Or like, you know, are you originally from this town? And letting that kind of growing to like other questions you've asked about asking people, you know, do you have children and those kinds of things? Exactly. What kind of work did you do through the years? Do you have children? How old are your children? Where do they live? What kind of work do they do? You know, they might be drug addicts and you might say, you know, if you go to heaven, how long do you think this lump sum's going to last? Mm. And they think, you know, I've come straight out and be straight honest with folks like that, you know? And, and I also ask them the brown paper bag question. You know, if, if I show they give me a price and I say, if I show up here tomorrow with brown paper bag and it's got all that, that much cash in it, we put it on the table over there and you count it and it's all there. What are you going to do with the money? And that question answers two questions for me. How they answer is very important because it tells me how bad their itch is. Mm. You know, we, we try to find out where their itch is, and that's the way to find out how bad that itch is, how mm. bad it's really bothering them. And if they tell you, hey, it's none of your business, that you know, it's not too bad of an itch, you know. Mm. And but if they start telling you, well, I think I'll go put it in the bank and we're just gonna look for a CD or you know, I really don't know. Well, what if I could pay you a greater rate of return than the bank? What if, what if, you know, and then you work into the installment sale deal. I love that. I love the brown paper bag technique. <laughs> and I do it all the time. I do it every time, every time. It's incredible. So I think of you as having actually achieved financial freedom. What does that mean or look like? Because a lot of us are aspiring to where you are. So give us a, a sense of what does it look like and what does it mean to have actually achieved financial freedom? You know what? That is absolutely one of the best questions that you could ask. And I started out a long time ago. I didn't want to own the world. I jokingly don't want to own all the real estate, just what joins me. But that's a joke. <laughs> but um, a long, long time ago, I had a goal of one day being able to get up in the morning and my income allow me the freedom to go do what I wanted to do that day and, and my income not be based on what I physically or mentally did that day. What you do, you create what a lot of people call mailbox money, you know, money that's going to come no matter what you do that month. Now, what I do in real estate doesn't totally, I mean, I still have to do things. We, you know, we're still managing our own property. We still make sure all the rents are paid and that thing, that sort of thing. To answer that question, it's different to a lot of people. Uh, I, I'm about to do a presentation in Richmond, Virginia at Dealmakers. And, and uh, I don't know how you're going to, you know, repetition is the key to greatness. So I don't mind. I'm going to go ahead and say this. One of my first slides might be of a homeless person. And my second slide is probably going to be a picture of Elon Musk. You know, his mom spelled that 
wrong. Uh, she meant Leon, but it got on his birth certificate, Elon. Um, I know she was naming him after me, but you know, there was some kind of translation that got lost there. And from South Africa. So maybe that was the disconnect. Maybe so. Maybe so. But anyway, you know, the homeless person has all the time in the world, but he doesn't have any maybe financial freedom, but Mm -hmm. that might be what makes him happy. You know, he's got the freedom. He doesn't have any worries other than maybe what he's going to have to find to eat before the day's over or if it's going to rain today or get cold tonight. There's Elon, on the other hand, one of the richest guys, if not the richest in the whole world. I heard him say that in the last 10 or 12 years, he'd only take tried to take off for a week twice. And both times, bad things happened. One of his Rockets blew up in, in one of his weeks off, and he didn't take get to take the whole week off. And then another time, Bezos or so, some other guy, the guy from Britain, I forget his name, his rocket blew up, and he had to help out or something there. Mm. Uh, he works 16, 18, 18 hours a day, slept on office floors and all of that. And, you know, if that's what makes him happy, that's great. That's freedom to him. But most people like me is on a scale somewhere in between that homeless guy. And and I've discovered that the things in life that make you happy aren't things. Mm. If And that's a deep thought, you know, uh, a lot more money. And there's some psychological studies that have said, and I'm sure you know about those, where when people make a reasonable amount of money where they can have a decent home and drive a decent car and not worry about paying the bills and whatever, you know, that's, that's happiness and freedom. And another million dollars a year is not going to make them any happier. And you can look at a lot of celebrities lives who have all the money in the world and they're the most unhappiest people committing suicide and they, they don't have freedom. They, Mm. they might have a bunch of financial freedom, but they don't have peace. So you have to really look in life and 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 be conscious about what you do and aspire to so that you have that freedom and peace. Mm. And 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 I hope I can spread that word to a lot of people and that you will spread that word and and find freedom and peace for you. You know, so many people go to years to school to be doctors or whatever the case might be in their First day on the job, they're happy that they're out of school and that, man, I'm going to have a big paycheck. And the second day they show up, they absolutely hate it. They hate every minute of it after spending all that time. And the, and the idea is that they've climbed the ladder to success. And when they get up there to the top, they realize it's leaning against the wrong building. Mm. So freedom to me and peace is to be able to get up in the morning go do what I want to do. And it's nothing extravagant. You know, it might be fly fishing. It might be whatever. And my income not based on what I mentally or physically go do that day. Mm. I really, first of all, that's very deep. Thank you for sharing that. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of, you know, not being obsessed with having things, but being more focused on who you are and the experiences that you go through in life as that's, that's where the joy is. That's where the value is. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and it's awesome that at your age, you recognize that. This is a separate thought, but have you ever in your, in your 
well, I guess you didn't really have like working years, but did you ever take a sabbatical, like a couple of months where you just said, I'm not going to show up at the office, et cetera? Well, you know, there was one time a few years ago, uh, 20 or more years ago, 25 years ago, that I sold an insurance agency that we had. And I kind of took off for about a year and a half. Hmm. And, you know, I was out on the farm, bush hogging on the tractor, which I love to do, playing on, on the tractor. But after about six months of that, going to do what I want to do every day, I started feeling guilty hmm. because I'd spent a whole bunch of time, you know, in building this insurance agency. We started from scratch. I'm talking totally zero. Now, we kept buying houses during that period of time. And we built that agency up from zero to, in about four years, we were doing a couple million dollars a year in business. Mm. And we kept it like six years and four months and we sold it. But during that period of time, we were Elon Musking it. We were, we kept that office open 10 hours a day, Monday through Friday. And we were open on Saturday. And we took, we, we recognized a niche in the market back then that we latched onto. And that's the reason it grew so fast. And towards the end, we were writing like two or 300, over 200 new applications every month. And we were working in our business instead of on our business for the most part and kind of did a little burnout there. So I took like a year and a half off. I started looking at other businesses and during that period of time, we bought more real estate and, you know, we, we just kind of did those kind of things. Hmm. That's when we bought the tax businesses and opened new insurance agencies. And maybe with a, a new outlook on spreading the management responsibilities with other people hmm. and delegating, well, you know, there came a time when I learned to delegate more, you know, we bought multiple offices and I figured out one day. You know, when I'm not in one of the offices, I'm in the other one, but there's nobody in that one. Why do I need to be in any of them? And I actually moved my office home during that time and got mm -hmm. out of the office. And some of the employees were drawing pictures, you know, little sketches and faxing them back to the office and writing Leon on it and saying, have you seen him? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, we've taken some time off and, and buying houses. It's not like I've gone out and tried to buy 50 houses in a month. Although we did, one time we did buy a hundred and something doors in uh, at one time, but there's a lot of times that I would just kind of pull back a little bit and make sure I had my feet on the ground and, mm -hmm. and that'll help you have freedom and peace. You know, like again, uh, John Schaub's book, building wealth, one house at a time, get your feet on the ground. Don't overdo yourself. There's so many of the gurus out there right now that uh, are hurting really bad because they have overextended themselves time-wise, credit-wise, the whole bit. They've got balloons coming due, and they're losing their families over it, and you know they've totally lost their freedom and peace. And like I said on a Steve Trang interview about three years ago, when the tide goes out, you're going to see who's not wearing a bathing suit. And, and that's happening right now. That's happening. But yeah, I did. I have taken some month or two off or a year and a half off here and there. And then you felt guilty about it. Yeah, you know, you go through that. I think anybody who's been real in 
tense and, and doing something several hours a day for a long period of time. And if you stop, it's something you have to get through and start to uh, realize, hey, I don't have to be there. You know, I don't have to show up to do something. I, I don't have to do something productive today. That's a hard one. That's, that's hard to, I think, yeah. It's okay not to do something productive today. Everybody's got these goals. Oh, man, I got to do so much every day. And they, the drive and the whole bit, you know, uh, back up and look for the low-hanging fruit. Be willing to wait, walk away from some deals that you got to jump through hoops and make happen. Hey, mm. I'm not, I'm not going to jump through those hoops. Mm. And it's going to be my way or the highway. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad sense, you know. But sometimes you have to have your your standards. Exactly. Prioritize your your peace of mind, your mental health. Exactly. Evaluate it. Is is hey, is this deal going to take away from my freedom and peace? And mm-hmm. if it is, I don't want to. Do, I don't want to do it. You know, I had an opportunity here not long ago. A realtor brought a deal to me, and uh, this guy was about to die. He was to where he could not move, but he had his total mind. He had Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm. And he had several properties. His family did not want to manage them. Manage them. His brother was the trustee of his trust, and the deal fell through. Mm. And when it did, I actually had a sense of peace come over me. Mm. But it was because I was sticking to some standards of things that needed to be in that deal to make it a real, true wholesale terms kind of deal. And he got scared and didn't sell. But when he called to tell me that, I said, you know, I just felt a feeling of peace come over me because it was a lot of properties and they had a lot of issues. And of course, I was going to enlist the help of Adam and that realtor and bring them in on the deal to, you know, kind of keep my freedom and peace and let them take care of a lot of those management things. But I really did feel a, a, a sense of peace come over me. So it was the best thing. Sometimes it, things that don't work out end up working out. For the best. Mm-hmm. You betcha. All right. My my final questions here. Tell me about the very first house that you bought as an investment. Okay. Um, it was a creative kind of deal in, of sorts. I did go get a bank loan on that one. That's one of the very few. And it had a two or three or four year, I think maybe a, three year, I don't remember for sure, balloon. And I was a young broker and was, you know, starting to get a little traction in the area. Had a guy who wanted to buy a house in a new subdivision, but he had to sell his house first. And I had a guy who wanted to buy his house, that guy's house, but he had to sell his house first. And I was going to get commissions on all three of those if that happened. So I actually bought the first house for $10,000. Now, this was in like 1975. Bought it for $10,000. Got a commission off of it with him buying the next house in line and got a commission off of that. With that guy buying a, the brand new house and getting a commission off of all three of those, gave me a month enough down payment money to buy that first house. And I was in the military. I was still in the military. I had another six or eight months to go before I was out of the military. And uh, that was my first one. And so finally, looking at how you did business, how you do business now compared to how you did business in that deal, 
if you had a chance to go back to Leon, still six months out of living the military, working his first deal, what would you say to him? Okay, I would say seek out some really good mentors and take a whole bunch of courses. You know, Jimmy Napier used to say, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Mm. And, and now speaking, after all those years, and one of, the, one of those mentors, or a couple of them are still alive, and I don't know how long they're going to be teaching. I would be, I'd go find John Schaub, Pete Fortunato, Gary Johnston, Dave Tilney, and a bunch of those guys. And then there's some young ones coming on, like my son Adam and, and Courtney and you that have just really gone and gone multiple times to my old mentors. And, and there's some new folks coming up like, well, and not new, really, Jim Ingersoll is in, in there that he had the same mentors as me. And now he's put together a group uh, like at Deal Makers. If you went to Deal Makers, there's going to be multiple people there that can be wonderful mentors who have courses to offer and and that sort of thing. But I would say don't go to these where you're spending ten thousand dollars for some of these deals. You can you can go to some of these five six hundred thousand dollar deals and get absolutely wonderful, great information without going and spending 10, 15, 20, 30. If, the, if you go to a deal and they start upselling you, mm. uh, learn all you can at that and leave. Don't get upsold by some of these folks, these, these what I call gurus. And I don't consider myself a guru at all. Uh, I don't even want to be listed in that category. And my advice to them is if you see a picture of them on the internet standing next to a, a, a private jet or in front of a mansion out in the Southwest somewhere, or if they sitting next to a, a Maserati or a Ferrari, you, you need to shy away from those folks. You know, you'll learn more from some of these old guys. And then there's some new guys. Like I said, Courtney Fricky is, is uh, one of the sharpest, uh, folks, young folks that I know in real estate, and she's going to these seminars with Pete and Gary Johnston and all these, uh, oh, every time the door opens, you know, and I introduced her four or five years ago to them and boom, she has gone and, and she is doing deals that'll blow your mind, you mm -hmm. know, uh, solving people's problems and bringing freedom and peace to them. Yep. Courtney is an incredible person. Well, thank you so much, Leah, and really appreciate your time today. This was just incredible. I think there's a lot that people are going to take away from every single question, all the way from how do you do seller financing to managing tenants to freedom and peace and building rapport with people, all just incredible, insightful advice. Thank you, Leon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember to check us out on herfirsthouse.org and join the community for access to bi-monthly calls with me and everyone else in the group, as well as loads of cool resources. Also, like, share this episode with two people and tell me what you liked or learned from the episode by tagging me on Instagram at Real Estate with Eti. That's Real Estate with E-T-I. We'll see you in the community and on the next episode.